0: You are listening to iFanboys Talk Explode with cartoonist Mike Dawson. Listening to iFanboys Talk Explode, the interview show from iFanboy.com. dot I am Josh Lanigan. Today we're going to talk with Mike Dawson, cartoonist and creator of Freddie and Me, Jack and Max, Gabagool, and Ace Face, the Mod with the Metal Arms, and also host of the Ink Panthers podcast with Alex Robinson. Hey, I am here with comic creator Mike Dawson. How are you doing today?
1: Doing very well, thank you.
0: Very good. Um, Mike, you, you were first known to us uh, at, at iFanboy when uh, Freddie and me got made uh, Book of the Month uh, sometime last year. Yeah. And I had heard rumblings about it, and, and I thought it's an interesting book, and then never got around to picking it up for a long time, which is, I imagine, the bane of indie comics creators.
1: <laughs> no, I understand. It's 300 pages. I, I don't expect people to immediately go out and uh, pick it up and devour it. If they, if they become aware of it, eventually they'll come to it.
0: Now, uh, I guess can why don't you describe what the book is? I mean, is, is would you call it a memoir?
1: Yes, a graphic memoir. Um, it was published in the summer of 2008 by Bloomsbury. It's called Freddie and Me, a coming of age Bohemian rhapsody, and it is a graphic memoir about my lifelong childhood obsession with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Um, it, it tells the story of my family moving from the UK to America when I was uh, when I was a preteen, a tween.
0: <laughs> they didn't have uh, that term back then.
1: They did not. <laughs> I never said I'm a tween. I imagine was, no one does that. That, that now. was my British accent just then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oi, I'm a tween. Uh, no, I, I bet they probably don't actually do that. I don't know. I don't know if eleven-year-olds say that.
0: I don't. I, I'm terrified of eleven-year-olds. I couldn't tell you. <laughs>
1: Eleven-year-olds are all right. It's the sixteen-year-olds.
0: Uh, I can't <laughs> even tell the difference. Lindsay, I, my wife saw a group of, of, of like kids down the road. She's like, "Ooh," and I was like, "I think they're just kids." Oh, they look but, tough. And I was like, "I think it's just what kids look like now." I don't. You
1: know. didn't keep your eyes on the pavement as you walk past. You didn't keep your don't make eye contact. They're like chimpanzees. Yeah, that's terrible. Um,
0: so uh, I guess when I mean when
1: did you decide was that a good enough s- description of the book? That was well,
0: we're gonna get, we're gonna go further.
1: Okay, let's uh, go for it. Let's right. dive um, deep.
0: I guess when did you decide that this was like a, a story that you wanted to tell? Did you always mean it to be this long or was it, was it like a, you just sort of started working on it? Or
1: Okay, so um, I had been making comics prior to Freddy and Me. Although Freddy and Me was, I guess, is obviously my most high-profile comic to date. Um, before then, I was uh, writing uh, humor comics with a, with a friend of mine, the humorist Chris Radke. Um, we'd been writing uh, a series called Gabagool. Um, which is a comedy comic, um, that was fiction, but as a fan of alternative comics and the, the kind of work coming out of the North American comic book scene, I was very, I've always been very interested in autobiographical comics. Um, and so I decided to take a break from working on Gabagool and do what I thought would be a fairly short, um, autobiographical story. I thought it would be a funny I think it's a funny thing to write about because it sort of is not a remarkable thing about me that I like this band. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of me sort of making a little bit of a joke about a topic that comes up a lot in, in alternative comics is that people complain that people don't have interesting enough lives to write about. Mm-hmm. My opinion is that if a book, if a story is written well, it doesn't really matter what the the – actual items of you know the things that happen in your life yeah. if you could write about it well i mean that's because that, there's a lot of alternative comics that do that where it's a fairly straightforward mundane life like joe matt's the poor bastard i think is great chester brown i think his autobiographical comics are great but they're not exactly you know remarkable lives anyway so that was my starting point and it was intended to be a much shorter thing just a just a graphic novella maybe um mm-hmm. uh, like 80 pages or so but it just sort of grew and grew um and as I developed it, it sort of became a lot of me thinking about memory and the act of remembering, as well as writing this story of my life. Um, and it also, I also came up with more playful ideas how to deal with the music in, in the context of the book. I, I structured the book like the song Bohemian Rhapsody, um, with three main parts that are they're all a little different in tone, with little breaching sections uh, connecting them. Um, because it is really one of my favorite songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so that's how, really how yeah, that's how it came about.
0: How I mean, how far along were you before you started to put together the the structure in, in the whole thing? Because I mean, I guess if you weren't planning for it to be that long, did that come up later, or did they just up yeah, a lot longer than you expected?
1: Well, the way I work is, um, I work that I as I as I'm drawing and writing pages, I will do a lot of the writing. As I go, and then I go back and do a lot of editing. I don't script things beforehand and work from a script. Mm. I sort of script maybe just a couple pages ahead perhaps, but I've just never been very good at doing the whole thing. Mm. And to me, that's actually a good way to work because I think then it leaves a lot of room for inspiration and new ideas to to hit you and, you know, to change the course of what you're writing. Um, And I think it's actually in comics, part of the writing of a comic is many, many hours spent working on just the drawing. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing that, you're so sort of absorbed into what you're doing mentally that I think it's a really great place for new ideas to occur to you. So I'd actually written maybe 100 pages. I'd written basically the whole first section of the book, which is my childhood in England leading up to my family's decision to move to America. Um, and it was at that point that I got the idea to, to mimic Bohemian Rhapsody. With the story because I, I came up with this idea for a little bridging section, which I called the guitar solo, which because that comes in between the part where he's singing about his mother and then the operatic part. Mm. Um, so that was like a little uh, mini uh, essay in comics form. And uh, at that point, I got the idea that I was going to do it this way. And I, and I you know, went about creating the book in that fashion.
0: Now you were doing this basically on your own. I mean, uh, had you been, had you been self-publishing the comics before that? You were you were self-publishing Gabagool, or were there, was it being published by somebody?
1: Yeah, with the exception of a couple anthology credits, I'd never been published before. I'd uh, self-published six issues of Gabagool. Well, three of them were mini comics, and then then Chris and I uh, upgraded to uh, Quebecor floppies. Um, the... the the second three issues of the series but yeah i've been self-publishing and i didn't really know if i was going to have the self-published freddie in me or not for a very long time
0: so i mean how did you go from that to i mean you got published by bloomsbury it was a it's a quote-unquote real publisher
1: i think that um a lot of uh re, quote-unquote real publishers i think we're getting into and are still getting into the graphic novel game because for a couple years there. In 2006, 2007, it was a really fast-growing segment of publishing, um, where other parts—I seem like other areas were having a little bit of trouble. Graphic novels were growing, um, so I was one of the first graphic novels that Bloomsbury put out, and uh, I, I think I have a brand new one out right now uh, called Logic Comics. Um, so I benefited, uh, definitely benefited, sort of uh, timing-wise by the market's a new interest in sort of books of this size and length and this type of subject matter. Um, I think that, you know, I sort of was finishing the book up at kind of the right time because when I started, that wasn't happening. Um, what was I saying? I actually... So how'd you, I mean, how'd they get it? How'd you, how'd you
0: go from guy who was self-publishing comics to, to getting it in front of somebody to make the right decisions that they wanted to publish it?
1: Um, I was able to get interest from french publishers Mm -hmm. and i got uh i got um, an agreement with a french publisher which then i think got me enough sort of uh momentum behind me that i was able to then get in touch with an agent in the u.s um who was he saw a home for it in the uh, uk uh publishing market as well Mm -hmm. um because because my book is about america and england it sort of was quite appealing to uh i think an english market as well uh so he took interest in it and then he was able to organize the other publishing deals that uh, that i had for the book um which was a couple different countries as well as coming out in the uk through a separate publisher than in the united states that's a jonathan cape which is a it came out hardcover
0: so were you just uh, i mean were you sending out submissions to uh, different publishers and, and like were you sending them all over the world
1: uh no um The French publishers got in touch with me um, because I had posted pages of the book on my website and then a comics blog linked to it, a very well-known comics blog. Um, So it was seen by a publisher in France who contacted me because I I think you know, just on the basis that it it was about Queen was very appealing to uh, Europeans um, because they really like Queen over in France. Are they still huge there? They are. They're massive. They're massive. There's, there's one of these things. There's never quite as big in the United States. Um so they contacted me and that was very exciting. Um then it was actually then soon after that is when I got started working with the agent, and then the agent has handled uh getting international deals. Look at look at you. Well, that doesn't mean that the next book is gonna same situation. It's that same
0: thing where everybody in comics comes across their uh, you know, their story and how they got published in, like, a completely different way. Yeah. I swear I never hear the same story, you know, twice. I've certainly never heard your version of it where you come through a French publisher first. That's
1: way It was go. very exciting. I thought it was going to get published in French before it ever got published in English. Did you? <laughs> well, was, I was happy enough. Did you just enough.
0: pick up the phone one day? It was like, was you, was you, what?
1: Exactly. And I, just, I don't even know what happened, but I had agreed to a publishing deal. I didn't find out for, like, a week later. Wait a minute. Thirteen francs? This isn't worth anything. Terrible deal. This is awful. That's why I don't answer the phone.
0: Um now now as a result of this book, you've sort of sort of became known as the Queen Guy.
1: Yeah. How yeah. do you feel about I that? Um so. well I mean I'm okay with it mm-hmm. in that if I'm known as anything is is positive. Sure. <laughs> Better than, you know, not being known as anything. Um I feel that the queen aspect of the book is probably it probably is a double-edged sword, right? Because I think a lot of people come to my book because the, they have a pre-existing interest of Queen. And then I think probably a lot of people don't read my book because they have a pre-existing hatred of Queen. Um, and then there's just people in the middle who are probably just interested in alternative comics. And you know, and, the, and it is the type of story that I have found does appeal to people who, who could care less about the band.
0: So, so how big of a Queen fan are you to this day?
1: Um, For those, <laughs> of,
0: those of the listeners out there who, who may not know.
1: Uh I I think I recently decided to I'm going to rate myself as a 7 or an 8. Okay. Out of 10 because I would have thought of myself as a big queen fan before working on this book but but now I've met a lot of queen fans <laughs> who put me to shame. I feel that way about Star Wars. Whether you were <laughs> 10 before? I like, thought I was ten. a pretty
0: big Star Wars fan, but really I mean, I don't have a tattoo.
1: You're like I've seen that movie 12 times. Yeah. I am the world's biggest Star Wars fan. <laughs>
0: I mean there's there's a certain so you wouldn't say you're not obsessive. I doesn't I don't think that comes across that way.
1: No, I'm not. Uh, and actually um sadly for Queen, my appreciation of their music uh became a lot more focused. So I, wor- I worked on the book for about 3 or 4 years. Mm-hmm. Um when I started, I was just a blanket Queen fan, just oh, I love Queen. Um but after spending all those years listening to all their albums I've started now I definitely like certain albums a lot more than others and other ones I don't really even like at all as much anymore And, and some of the latter day latter day albums as,
0: as, is, as is pretty standard
1: yeah I mean,
0: the last few Who albums You see, what, anyway <laughs> <laughs> now let me ask you I guess something else when you're doing an autobio comic like that and you're fairly expansive um, how does it was it, were you thinking about how you were putting a version of yourself out and and like you know i guess laying yourself out there a little bit does that did that come relatively naturally or was it it's something you were thinking about a lot as you were doing it
1: um it came relatively naturally i mean when i think about uh trying to make a story from life experiences i definitely learned early on that the the way it happens in a television show like the wonder years where he's able to be like I remember this one thing that happened over the course of one week and I remember it all clearly and here's the you know here's a clear narrative it's not like that with your own memories it's much more you know images here and images there and sort of a, a you know vague uh story that you can sort of piece together but it definitely isn't the kind of thing where you're like I remember specifically every event that happened over the course of those couple of days um do you get what I'm saying yeah yeah um, so I found that it really was like it was the experience was in the beginning just sort of trying to compose some of those snapshots and then the narrative grew out of that because um, I, 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 none of it is made up it's all the way that I remember things even to um, an extreme where certain things couldn't have happened the way I remembered it but since I remembered it that way that's how I wrote it mm-hmm. um, with things uh, like when I Well,
0: did you do, I mean, did you do like research about, like, did you check on a story? Did you,
1: yeah, well, this is the the one, the one glaring example is that my memory of Freddie Mercury announcing he had AIDS happened on a school day. And I went to school and I was upset all day. And then the next day, uh, he died and I was really upset. But when I looked at the calendar, um, he announced it on a Sunday. And so, I would have gone on the Monday when he died, but for some reason, I have these memories of the day before, even though it definitely didn't happen at school. I remember being at school, so mm-hmm. it's just you know it's not reliable, sure. memory is not you know, and plus the people who appeared in the book have you know pointed out many, many times all the minor details they think I got wrong um but that's not really the point i I suppose well, that's what my opinion is, yeah, <laughs> <So> screw them, <laughs> exactly. um, should I, be I, thankful I... to be in the book, <laughs> Alex Robinson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's not bring this all out again. Um, I, I guess the I guess the one last thing that I wanted to sort of touch on in the book is that you know you're drawing yourself over and over in this book, and so you had to come up with a visual representation of yourself. Yeah, and what you you have a a giant round head and and big teeth and a really like you're very exaggerated. Like I know what you look like. You look kind of like this, but this is not what I would call a flattering uh, depiction of
1: yourself. Now, actually, it hurts my feelings when people go, oh, you really captured yourself in the book. (laughs) (laughs) That protruding brow and gigantic teeth.
0: I mean, did that come from, like, is that how you'd always sort of drawn, I guess, a caricature of yourself or, you know? um...
1: I developed it in the story. My early pages, I didn't look like that. But then I came up with this thing that I thought was funny and uh, and I thought was an appealing character caricature, Um, and I do think it actually does look like me, just maybe not I'm not quite as grotesque as that Um, and there's also a a funny thing that emerged from it, this wasn't conscious, was that uh, people like my wife, my mother my sister, all the girls in my life uh, were not pleased with the way they were represented, but uh, I feel that Nobody can complain because I clearly look the worst of everybody. <laughs>
0: it's str- it's strategic in that way.
1: It is because uh, Eliza, my wife, does not like how I drew her, but you know she doesn't look like this, you know, grotesque Mongoloid thing that I drew myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's better that way. I mean, anyway, I mean, my I always I also just think it's funny. I mean, the I mean, I hope that the book is funny. I think it's kind of a blend yeah. of, uh, of of humor and sincerity, but you know. It really was supposed to be, you know. I definitely have a humorous side to it. The whole point of it was supposed to be a little bit funny.
0: No, it is, it's, and it's in that way that, uh, I mean, you're you're sort of making fun of of yourself as a kid. And, cause yeah. As a kid, you you kind of overdo everything just a little bit, and it's it's a it's a, it's a neat. Uh, I don't need to sit here and compliment you, but it's no, a I mean, neat. What else? Uh, what else is good about it? What it's, what it's a, a <laughs> neat framework for for what that is, and I mean, yeah. in that way, it's not really just. Here's me obsessed with Queen. It's it's really like one of those – everybody's got their adolescent story and that that whole thing growing up. Yeah. Um, I thought that's what I related to.
1: Well, I found that people couldn't just relate to that feeling about obsessing with pop culture as well. Like how you would feel if you wrote a book about Star Wars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which I wouldn't do. Because
1: um, then you would discover that you are not the biggest Star I'm, Wars. I'm
0: probably like a, a
1: three. Like, oh, really? You're downgrading yourself that much?
0: I, am, I might be. I don't, I don't want to know basically is, is my point.
1: Well, the one would be like the person in high school I know who'd only ever seen Spaceballs and had never seen Star Wars.
0: <laughs> that's where they, but they do rate still because they kind of get the cultural. Is
1: they're familiar with like when they actually sat down to watch Star Wars, they're like, "Oh, that's like that part in Spaceballs." <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: those are those are horrible people. Um, well, let's go backwards. You'd, you'd mentioned Gabagool, which I guess was sort of the, the first thing that um, – was, was it the first project that you sort of worked regularly on, put issues out, things like that? Yes.
1: That was when I first uh, was throwing myself fully into uh, you know the independent comics scene such as it is in the United States. It's actually pretty big. You know, There's a lot of conventions across the country. There's a, a fairly large community. Um, and I was working on this comic with uh, – as I said, with the humorist Chris Radke and uh we we did that for six issues and it was a uh, it was fairly well received and it was uh, it was actually a really great experience um i recently posted all all six issues on my website so uh since they're not published by anybody people can check them out there the whole thing's there though some of it is nsfw i must warn <laughs>
0: What the what who um using we use web acronyms in, in actual speaking time lol I, um so so what is Gabagool I this is one of those titles that I I remember like I don't remember where but like it's always been that fam- that sound in the background that I I know that there was a book somewhere called that but I never really knew what it was um, what is it and why is it called that
1: uh, Gabagool is about um, Christopher Vigliotti is the uh, is the protagonist and he lives in the Bronx in his cousin's uh he lives in his cousin's building um and it's sort of uh it's about him and his roommates and they're sort of, you know, slackers, nerds. The first 3 issues deals with them sort of being sick of what they do as their day jobs, so they decide to become bounty hunters for hire. Um so the, the couple issues are dealing with them and the jobs that they get and uh, the 3 the last three issues deal with them going on vacation, um, in Jamaica. But the whole gabagool thing is about you know they're Italian American. Um, Chris, the co-writer, um, is Italian American, so it's a lot of it based on his experience and people he knew, mm-hmm. you know, from Long Island and the Bronx. So it's very very set in in a specific place and time.
0: Now, how much? Because uh, you did all the art and I, yep. I you co-wrote it, correct? Yep. So like, did you guys work up scripts together? Did you sort of work, I guess, you know, like plot style, and then you would draw it out and and.
1: Uh, that, I mean, that was a very different writing experience. Um, it, we would we would sit down and it would be like through conversation generating a script. We'd you know, I'd sit there with a notebook and we we just write it out. We and we'd actually write out full full issues, and then I would go and draw it. Um, so very much different from the way I work when I'm by myself, but really very positive. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it really does sort of drive home this idea that collaboration, you know, really does enable you to do the type of things you could not do by yourself. You know, collaboration is very positive in that way um, because you you know you're going to come up with things that it would be impossible for you to write or draw, you know, alone. Do you think
0: it was good for you in the in the sense of I, I imagine it'd be good that. Especially when you're starting out and you're just gonna commit yourself to do something. It's harder to abandon a project if you're working on it with somebody. So it sort of keeps you going, you
1: know. I mean it's definitely good because we got momentum going. We you know, we'd have a great time at conventions. Chris was great at selling copies of it to people. He was very persuasive. Um in fact he developed a reputation <laughs> for a little while there for being so persuasive. Um Sort of been able to grab people as they as they walk past the table, reel them in, and sell them some books. Um, you know, which is a good thing. I mean, it can be grating to some people, but it, really, it's just you know we believe in the comic. The comic is good, and you know you want people to check it out. And almost always, people had a positive reaction to it.
0: It's, it's the indie comics experience.
1: Yes. Um, well, the, the alternate alternative I found is to sit there with sort of a sad, forlorn look on your face behind the table and just hope someone takes pity on you.
0: We, I thought we weren't going to talk about Alex Robinson.
1: <laughs> That's well, you know, it works okay. <laughs> you sit there with your your sad cow eyes. <laughs>
0: um, this might be it would be it be a good time, I guess, to mention that you you do a, you do a podcast uh, with with the aforementioned Alex. Um, yes, that's why I
1: keep bringing him up. You two show.
0: are friends. That's, He's that's, not
1: actually like my nemesis in comics. That's, that's why no, it's okay comic. to
0: <laughs> poke little bits of fun at him. Um,
1: yes, we have a show called The Ink Panther Show. Um, and you've been on.
0: I have. I'm, that makes me a very biased interviewer, but uh, full disclosure, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because you are two cartoonists, and you decided not to talk about any comics or cartooning of any way, although you've
1: did it definitely leaks in. I just think that that's uh for us mm-hmm. because we you know we can't talk about just our own comics every episode. I think it gives us a, more of a chance of having a little bit of longevity if we mm-hmm. if we have a broader range of things to discuss
0: so what why did you just why did you decide to start doing a, a podcast? Just you know you guys wanted to chat and and talk um, or whatever
1: well, I guess the idea has sort of been batted about from time to time, you know I mean we Think we're funny, <laughs> you know. So I guess we thought maybe we could, you know, sustain a podcast, which is just us in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to get together on a very frequent basis um, to buy comics and have dinner, and it was sort of like a standing uh, date, the mandate um, that we would have on sort of a weekly basis. And it was happening a lot less uh, once my daughter um, showed up. She was 18 years old. I didn't know that she existed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm
0: doing the math on that, (laughs) and
1: no. So we had a baby, and I just you know that tends to make it so it's a little more difficult to maintain you know social arrangements. Um, So we kind of just I don't know if that's the conscious reason we decided to do it, but I kind of feel like we've replaced our weekly sit down at the Irish pub and chat with now a weekly sit down on the computer and talk over the Skype. You know, and then have everyone listen to what we said.
0: It's not really that different than why why our podcast started, really. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. Like, my two friends lived on the East Coast and I lived on the West Coast. And this was, you know, a way for us to do it.
1: Did you talk about comics with those friends yeah, all the time? We,
0: we, we, yeah, that's kind of, that was our thing. That was our shared experience. And, you know, the, the, our whole show and basically everything, you know, that became my career then, you know, for two years came out of it. So,
1: so in the early days, before you had the podcast, you guys would go to dinner and then you'd sit, you know you you each take a turn. You go pick of the week, and you'd be like, "This is it." And
0: no, that's that's <laughs> not. Yes, that's exactly what happened. No, no, we uh we been I doing know. the website forever, and we we did the this we did the pick of the week on there, and it was just like our thing. Oh, you do out.
1: that in conversation. You would have pick of the week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't go on to the main course until one of us had chosen the best book.
1: Yes, we won't
0: we won't do this any further. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, a, it's a funny show, and uh, I've tried to make sure that people listen to it when they can. And you guys are – it's funny, you know, because it's one of those things in podcasting. Listening to somebody talk or listening to two people talk together is not always interesting, but uh, good shows stand out. And uh, I will walk down the street, and I will laugh very frequently at listening to the two of you.
1: Oh, um, thanks. Um, I mean, I guess it's the same sort of idea what I was talking about before, you know, that depending on how you say things, it could be interesting, you know.
0: I think the show is about the um, ineffectual nature of the modern man.
1: That's what I, I kind of actually That is a constant theme is how Alex and I don't feel like real men.
0: I don't I don't want to do that because it makes me uncomfortable or I don't think I'm up to it.
1: That's how we that's basically what we're talking about all the time. <laughs> how We feel lost when we go into a Home Depot. You know, yes, we got to get that out. You know, I got to stop talking about that.
0: Hey, if that's what it is, that's what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. So ch- make sure you check out the Ink Panther show. up. I'm going to
1: change the topics to how I'm, I'm winning all these arm wrestling matches. That's going to be my topic every week.
0: Don't, don't change the working formulas, what I'm saying to you.
1: Okay, all right.
0: It's nothing that's not a good idea. So uh, moving on to stuff that's going on now, um, you have a book out from
1: Ad House. Yes, it just uh, came out a couple months ago.
0: Uh, Ace Face, the mod with the metal arms. Again, I'm going to defer to you to explain what this is.
1: You know, it actually sort of is uh the same as the Ink Panther show in that it's me obsessing on feelings of masculinity and manhood, but in a funny way. Um because Ace Face is a superhero uh character that I've had for a number of years. Um he was born without arms. He happened to have a, a scientist uncle who built him a, a robot pair of arms. It was funny when he was little because they were adult-sized robot arms that he had to grow into, so he looked ridiculous the first couple years of his life. But all the stories really are about um, comic book violence, like, you know, the way how things happen in the comics sort of contrasted against sort of how confrontation happens in real life. Um, so some of them are him encountering, like, comic book type of battles, and then some of them are more like slice-of-life uh, contrasts against, you know, what what it, things are really like when you get into confrontations with people mm. um so that,
0: and then in the middle of the you know it sort of alternates there's little sort of vignettes little stories and there's the 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 jack and Mac stories in here too which are uh, you're also currently sort of self-publishing on the web yeah at the same time which um i, I guess these are two kids with superpowers
1: yeah so this who are
0: constantly fighting
1: yeah, so this again is sort of it was me thinking. It's uh, a lot of it is me, and I, I hope I don't make it sound like it's not funny because most of the stories are actually pretty funny. I think in Ace Face, they're supposed to be. Yes. Um But uh, it was again like I was thinking about the concept of Power Pack, mm-hmm. and you know the Marvel the Marvel comic book from the 80s and 90s, and it was like four little kids siblings who all had powers and they fought together as a team like against you know, foes and threats. But I was thinking about how in reality, siblings, if they had superpowers would just be using those powers to knock the crap out of each other and destroy the house. And, you know, especially like these are two boys, you know, one's a third grader, one's a fifth grader, they're brothers. And they're just constantly, you know, antagonizing each other, wrestling and then destroying things with their powers. Um,
0: Were you, were you doing these stories? I mean, were you just posting these on your website? And then put them together in a book because it's sort of it's sort of a little anthology. I mean, I, I know they're all sort of loosely connected, but there's you know there's stuff in here about there's the Ace Face stories and there's the Jack and Max stories. There's a story about your your loud neighbors. Yeah, um, which I've heard about on the podcast.
1: <laughs> no, those are fic- that's a fictional story sure. about Ace Face's son who lives in Park Slope and has loud neighbors. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that remarkably parallels one in that real life. That looks exactly
1: like my life. I don't know. I didn't <laughs> want to come off all, uh, you know, like I'm into gentrifying neighborhoods and stuff like that. I don't know. I started, you're running a f- fine line when it comes to New York City politics when I'm complaining about you know, living in Yuppie Park Slope and how loud, loud thugs are hanging out in the stoop, ruining it for us, for us yuppies with our baby joggers. Um, listen to the Ink Panther show if you want to hear me complain about that more.
0: I believe episode one and two are the...
1: Yeah, the, the early ones. I guess so I was in the throes of the whole situation. Um, I lost my train of thought.
0: Yeah, these... <laughs> I, was, I was asking, like, this is like an anthology. Was this stuff that you... Uh, were you were you publishing all this stuff on the web and then and then brought it to AdHouse to sell sort of as a complete thing? or?
1: So two of the stories, two of the Ace Face stories had appeared previously in AdHouse anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, Project Superior and the spin-off series that came out of that called Superior Showcase. Um, so I had some Ace Face stories. I had ideas for other stories. Um, and then I was doing short stories to just post on my website. I kind of had spent four years working on Freddy and Me. And I was just trying to take a bit of a breather and just do short short stories that I could put up on the web rather than diving right into another book that was going to take me four years you know, to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the Jack and Max material completed. I had the Ace Face material completed. A few other things were already done when I went to Ad House and, and proposed doing this sort of Ace Face anthology, which he was open to, thankfully. Um, uh, so then I, then I generated some new material for the book. Well, a lot of new material for the book after that.
0: Yeah, and it, I mean, it's it's a, it's a fun little book. Like, it's it's I find it very difficult to describe because there's sort of a lot in here. Um, but it's sort of like a little anthology of Mike Dawson comics, really.
1: Kind of, yeah. I mean, well, it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's Really, the only – the connection is that theme of sort of, you know, violence mm-hmm. and fighting um, because there's a lot of the stories are sort of a little different from each other. Sort of the tone is a little different. You know, the Jack and Max ones are kind of over the top. You know, and then the stuff about Ace Face's son in air quotes. You know, is a little bit more. <laughs> you know, like a different style of ca- cartooning.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, that's always interesting. Now these are, and it's only like a, it's like a seven dollar book. It's not
1: actually. It's on sale oh. at the publisher's website for four ninety five. It's a hundred pages, so I wish everybody who listens to the show would buy a copy.
0: Well, I, it's seven bucks. I even felt like I got. I got something fun out of it, so it's one of those things that, like, it's. I mean, I'm. It's odd. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you it's not odd because what you've got is the mod with the metal arms. You know, if Americans don't know what a mod is or any of that stuff, like I find it. You know, I was like I said, I was a Who fan, so I was like, this is yeah. the oddest thing ever. <laughs> um,
1: but Were you just, disappointed because you thought it would be more of that. Like, it'd be a bit. More...
0: No, I, th- I think there was just enough. Okay. If, I'm, if I'm being honest. <laughs> okay, um, okay. But it was, neat. you know, it's just like, uh, it's one of those things like, you know, nerdy American comic writers have a thing for, for British society, I think, a little bit. They're yeah. files they know what Monty Python is, they know all that stuff. So I think to read the, the stuff in the beginning, um, it's, just, it's just sort of one of those interesting things. It wasn't like anything else, I guess.
1: Now, well, I you, mean, that, I think that's good in theory. It is terrible when I sit at a table trying to sell it. I can I'm, see that. Uh, I have no know. idea how
0: you got this published, but um, <laughs> it's it's good. Is the point? It's it is difficult to explain. So apparently, you're not at all commercial, and in that way, uh, you're perfect for indie
1: comics. It's Actually, great. I would say, yeah, that was. I don't think it's been a commercial success. <laughs> I think.
0: <laughs> um, I, now, are you you're doing now? You also work with. Now, you post stuff on your website, and then you also do stuff with Activate, or is it the same stuff? Can you explain to me what Activate is? I'm hearing a lot more about this, and I know that the Activate Primer just came out, which is an anthology of all the Activate stuff.
1: Yes, I have a story in that. Okay. Uh Um, It is a Jack and Max story. Um, It's called Goodnight, Max, and it's sort of a little bit of a takeoff of the children's book Goodnight, Moon, which I'm sure you, Josh, will become familiar with (laughs) In a couple months, <laughs> when your baby arrives, because I imagine you're going to get it as a gift. I'm not sure Are you able to talk about your baby on the on the show. Yes, you I am edit, it's fine. Edit that out. Okay. No. You probably will get it as a as a gift when the baby arrives, and it's a good book. But anyway, so I have a short story in there. I tried to sort of mimic the style of that book. Uh, yeah. um, so,
0: what is Activate?
1: Activate oh. is a web comics. Insist on doing it on writing comics with an X. So for their sake, imagine that I'm saying it with an X right now because it's a web comics collective. Um, is mostly, um, a group of, uh, New York, Brooklyn based cartoonists. They post a number of ongoing serialized strips, number of uh, different strips get posted every day. Um, mostly people are writing like long form graphic novel type books up on the web for people to read for free. And, uh, for free. And I had been, Writing a story called Jack and Max Escape from the End of Time. I took the characters from those two short stories that are in the Ace Face collection, and was working on a. And I'm still working on a long form story with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. <laughs> <laughs> now,
0: now I guess it's it's interesting because you know in a way independent comics have have come around where before you you know you had to be at at all the different shows and they're hundreds of them now, it seems like, and you're self-publishing and doing stuff. But now, you know, you guys are putting up all of your stuff on the web for free. Yeah. What do you, th- I mean, what do you think about that as a, as a method of getting your work out there? Does, do you worry that, that maybe it's cannibalizing any sales you could have gotten, or do you think it's, I mean, I assume you've decided it's better in the long run to...
1: I think from my perspective, and I bet a lot of web cartoonists probably sort of share this perspective, prior to posting stuff on the web. A lot of us would have been self-publishing our c- comics at Kinkos, mm-hmm. and that normally meant that you paid money. You know, you try to recoup some of it at shows, and you would, but usually, self-publishing is sort of a, a you know a it it doesn't put you in the black; it keeps you in the red. Mm-hmm. So, really, you're actually breaking even by putting it up on the web because at least you're not spending any money to to publish it, and you're meet, reaching a much larger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, And when you go to these shows now, like SPX, and I was at TCAP this last year. um, That's the one in Toronto, which is a fantastic comic book convention. Um, You can really see that the people who are putting web comics out are becoming the new sort of it people of these shows. They've got really big audiences now, big dedicated audiences. And it's probably, you know, I'm sure that this is the same percentage of people who put up good stuff and are successful against people who don't make successful web comics exists the same way it did in self-published comics Mm. Um, because there's probably even more people on the web now than there there are uh, self-publishing. But in terms of just being a cost-effective way to reach a large amount of people, it's fantastic. Um, I think there's a big drawback just in that I think that especially arts comics people are kind of bibliophile, tactile-type people who want to buy books. Um, So that's good and bad because... I know I personally don't love reading web comics because mm-hmm. I like to own comics. Um, I like books. Um, but I guess it works well for the web cartoonist who then publishes a collection of his, of his, of his web comics because yeah. then they have an audience. And, like, I've seen people who are, like, you know, the rock stars of these shows and they've self-published, a, you know, something that they've had up online for free and they sell out within, you know, within hours. Like, uh, have you heard of Kate Beaton? No. Um, she's really, uh, kind of like the buzzed, buzzed about cartoonists on a lot of these shows this last year. And i never heard of her until I went to Toronto, but now I, I hear about her all the time. She's a really good cartoonist, um, does an online comic called Hark! Exclamation point, a vagrant. <laughs>
0: uh, okay.
1: That's... But check it out. It's funny. It's a historical, uh, Comic strips. Well, like that just,
0: that silence there was not uh, indifference, but the inability to come up with a joke after hearing Hark a Vagrant. <laughs> like, this. I just, huh. <laughs> there was like, there's something there, but my my the gears froze and I didn't have anything and I ended up sounding uh, silent. So.
1: Like, stupid thing to say on the show. <laughs> Hark a Vagrant. Why'd I invite this guy on?
0: <laughs> no. Um. Now, when you're talking about making comics, now, y- you... Like you said, you have you have a um you have a, a small daughter, yeah, uh, a, a young daughter, and and you you still have a day job uh, some of the time. So I'd, not to break the myth or anything like that, but at the same time you're still making comics. Yep. Like how uh, disciplined do you have to be? Do you have do you have a, a like a schedule, a specific you know you have to do a certain amount of stuff every week to make
1: yourself yeah. feel good, or I, to make myself how, feel? How good. How do you stay on task? I guess. <laughs> Um, this isn't all a vanity exercise it's not just about making me feel good Um, I do have a a minimum number of pages which I try to draw in a week Mm -hmm. um, which is two so it's not like that ambitious Um, but that's also why Freddie and me took me so long because I had a day job then as well Mm -hmm. Um, now it's even rougher uh, because I've got the baby and she's getting to be more of a handful every day because uh, now she 's walking around and closing doors and getting into things um, closing doors on me, <laughs> shutting me out of rooms um, but yeah, I mean we have daycare right and I do you know and i so i and I do work at night still, and i 'm still able to get work done, so it does take a lot of me being pretty driven. Mm-hmm. it also means i don 't have a great social life i i don 't i mean i I mean I have a lot of people i know in comics but i don't go out a lot Mm -hmm. like like uh you know that's just the fact of it (laughs) so that has a lot to do with me having a baby and me just sort of having the urge to get pages drawn um rather than go out and i mean
0: where do you think that what does that urge come from you just like you just want to finish the thing you're doing you just constantly want to create stuff or i mean where do you find that motivation i guess
1: uh i think because being a professional quote unquote alternative style cartoonist is, is definitely an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, my goal would be to, you know, not to be famous, not to be the most successful one, but just to make a living doing it Mm -hmm. like, like something where I can, you know, that could be what I do, but that is actually, you know, a massive challenge into itself. And I'm, you know, I've had good things happen, you know, in terms of getting things published and stuff like that. But even now it's, you know, it's not like it's, it's not like something's published. You're done.
0: And you're not. You're also not 24.
1: No, I'm not, and, and I, I definitely I, have a wife who has a uh, standard of living to which she's accustomed. You
0: know. And you and you have nothing to do with it. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I have. Just, I <laughs> could live in a box. I don't care.
0: It, it's interesting, though. Because, do you think?
1: I think I got more driven after I got married. Actually, sure. When those constraints were put on me, mm-hmm. um, I think that when I was single and actually was living practically in a box. I lived in an apartment in the city where I didn't have a kitchen in my apartment and, and I was sharing it with somebody. We just had a curtain between our, our areas of the of the apartment, you know. So it was like a nest. It was like I had a little nest that I would bring <laughs> girls back to. Um ladies. I would bring ladies back there.
0: That I, makes them sound like hookers. <laughs> I
1: bring mean, ladies of the night. And I would, don't worry, that curtain's pretty soundproof. Um <laughs> Uh, so when I got married and I felt like I was more pressure was put on me to, you know, to be able to support myself, you know, at a day job, you know, that I'd take seriously, and, you know, do well at and, you know, and to put my family in on that stuff, you know, up there with my comics, can't leave them ahead of everybody though I'd love to oh I'd love to put my comics first do you think it is it I hope everyone can tell I'm joking a little bit
0: (laughs) you're being a little too dry (laughs) he may not sound British but he's got the dry British wit and he'll fool you
1: (laughs) he's like my god he's an asshole he would give up his wife for
0: a comic book Um, do you think I mean as a guy who's sort of on the bubble you've had professional success with it but it's difficult you know it's difficult to make a full time living with making comics do you think it is it a is it a good time for that or is – I mean is the industry in such a way that
1: – You mean like right now? Yeah. I think that uh, – I think the last year has clearly been rocky. I think that it was a, there was a great sort of uh, expansion in publishing, especially in graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I think I had my book coming out just at the right time to sort of – to benefit from that, You know, not to diminish – the quality of my book, I think, is a good book, but I think uh, you know there was a bigger, there was a wider choice of publishers, you know, to go to, mm-hmm. you know, there mm-hmm. was more opportunity. And this was two years or two three years ago, when I actually got the deal because the book didn't come out for like a year or so after. Um, I think it's definitely contracted with the with the publishing industry, is, is you know, is having a lot of problems. Such a short
0: um, window of of like the graphic novel success boom, like it was and then all of a sudden the economy collapses and it gets to be like oh and yeah. the publishing's hurting already.
1: Well, I think that I think that I mean, I don't know this because I don't have publishers explain to me what's going on. My outsider's perspective is that there're still graphic novels that are successful. Um, I think that they may be veering slightly towards the YA young adult audience type graphic novels that the literary graphic novel, the adult one is is struggling a little. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the kids' one is like. I actually like kids' graphic novels come out, and I never hear anything about them, or don't even realize they're out. And then I eventually will come across them, but it's like it's a whole different industry that I'm not even aware of. So I don't—I have no idea how well those are doing. Um, like they'll come out from big publishers, but they don't seem to be like getting into the sort of mainstream comics press, and you know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, I know I do. It, it, well, I think it's that. I don't know. The audience is, is kind of split about them. I think the audience, the mainstream comics audience, aren't really interested in kids' books Yeah. so much so they don't tend to talk about them. Although I think it's changing a little bit because um, they're older. You know, the, the, the comics audience isn't as young as – and I think there's a lot of people who want to be able to pass on comics to their kids. Yeah. So there's definitely a, a market for that. So –
1: but like you're I – mean, I was sitting with my daughter the other day. I was reading her Kramer's Ergo number seven <laughs> or no, number six mm-hmm. and uh, – and I thought it was funny because, you know, there was, it, was this, uh, it was this little section where it was all these, like, lovely, beautifully rendered drawings of, like, women urinating on people. and it was, So it's funny. My daughter is too young to actually, you know, get disturbed by it. You know, she sees a pretty picture, but my wife did not think it was funny. She didn't think it was funny that I was doing that. I was
0: thinking that was a problem as you were explaining it to me.
1: What? <laughs> His wife wouldn't think that was funny. Uh, but, I mean, but you
0: were, I mean... But even, like, Jack and Max, I mean, they're kids, but it's not like a kid's...
1: Well, that one I'm trying to write something that appeals to <laughs> kids and to adults. Yeah, um, I
0: mean, it's definitely got that flavor of somebody who's read Marvel Comics.
1: I mean, it's not going to appeal to adults who don't think it's funny that kids act obnoxiously <laughs> and, you know, violently. If you're the, an adult who thinks that's funny and, you know, remembers his or her own, own childhood, you know, somewhat accurately, then you would be okay with it. And kid's... think it's funny i mean the one of the first scenes is all about the one brother giving the other brother dutch ovens
0: (laughs) but he teleports
1: yes he does he uses his powers to teleport under the blankets to dutch oven his brother you know so this is not highbrow this
0: is (laughs) it's it's not but it's 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 lovely in its way (laughs) all right uh is there anything else that that i think we covered damn near everything
1: yes thank you you very much for having me on just to to ramble
0: no no problem at all it's uh Glad to have you.
1: Oh, you got to come on the Ink Panther show again. I'd, I'd love to. I,
0: I, I almost, it's funny. I almost feel intimidated. You guys have a vibe.
1: Well, you have a vibe on your show. Yeah, I know.
0: But you, you have a thing, and I'm in there and making fun of people from New Jersey. That was a mistake.
1: Oh, you've and, regretted all the things you said on the show.
0: I might have. I, <laughs> yeah. I got too comfortable. I forgot that there were people out there. Um, so you, you, what's your website?
1: It is MikeDawsonComics.com.
0: And you are on Twitter?
1: At- Which is that is a URL I despise, but I have a very common name, so I can't just be MikeDawson.com, so I sort of feel married to this Mike Dawson Comics.
0: I became J.A. Flanagan for that same reason.
1: you have a, a common name?
0: There's a Well, there's a Josh Flanagan out there, and he's like a programmer, and he got the URL years and years and years ago.
1: You know, I think the Mike Dawson out there with the URL is a programmer as well, <laughs> because they're the ones who landed those URLs way ahead of the rest of us. We need to find these guys. Jerks, he's We're wasting it on a nothing site. You know, it's like his professional resume site or something.
0: I do come up first for my name in Google, though.
1: Okay, that is good. So I got that going for me. Good. Awesome. Congratulations, right, well, J.A. Flanagan. <laughs>
0: thank you very much. I thought it was a nice author name. Like, if I ever put out a book, it would look good on, like, you know, next to D.A., whoever. Hughley. Yeah,
1: D.L. D. D. Hughley's <laughs> book. Of course. I would look good next to
0: each other. <laughs> I, I would have no problem with putting my book next to D.L. Hughley's book.
1: that's ridiculous both look very like authorly
0: (laughs) letters letters are letter for men of letters it makes perfect sense alright I'll see you later thank you Josh I want to thank Mike for hanging out with us and apologize to him for the music choice Anyway, you can read all about everything Mike's doing at MikeDawsonComics.com. Make sure to listen to the Ink Panthers podcast. You can find that on iTunes. And make sure to check out his many good books. And want to thank him a lot. Get to iFanboy.com to talk about this show and look at all the other stuff we got going on there. Thanks very much.